It's Friday, August 19th, 2022, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and worldwide. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. Well, I'm the only fellow who has that title. I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who's doing podcasts these days. And if you don't believe me, go to our website, hoover.org, and check it out yourself. Uh, very easy to find our podcast. You go to the uh, homepage where it says commentary. Click on that. That'll take you to another tab that says multimedia. You click on that, and up will pop our audio podcast. You can subscribe to any or all of them on iTunes. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcast your inbox once a month. My guest today is my Hoover colleague, Admiral Gary Ruffhead. Admiral Ruffhead is the Robert Marion Oster Distinguished Military Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, a graduate of the United States Naval Academy. He's one of only two officers in the U.S. Navy's history to have commanded both the Atlantic and Pacific fleets. His very distinguished naval career culminating with his service as the 29th Chief of Naval Operations. Gary Ruffin joins us today to talk about surprise naval affairs, the escalating rivalry with China and America's military readiness. Admiral, great to see you today. Great to be with you, Bill, and look forward to the discussion. So we were talking the other day, I believe you are in uh, Maine of all places. Uh, is it still storming? I think the last time we talked, you were getting a nor'easter. Uh, it has cleared. The sun is out. Uh, the bay looks terrific. And it's a, a, a great venue to talk about our topic for today. So I've always been curious when I talk to sailors, when they look out at the seas, does salt water little in your veins? When you look at the ocean, do you become nostalgic about going back out to sea? Or when you are a career Navy man, is that just being at sea? Is that just a phase of your overall career? No, whenever I get around the water, it uh, just brings back a lot of memories and, uh, and, and the excitement of having spent a career in the Navy. Uh, working with great people in so many places around the world, it, it, it does bring back a lot of memories. Let's talk about our Navy Admiral Roughhead. Uh, news this week, the USS Ronald Reagan CB-76 currently is in the waters east of Taiwan. Uh, last week, it was ordered to, quote, stay on station. Also reported earlier this week that there's been an increase in so-called unsafe and inter aerial intercepts between U.S. and Chinese military aircraft. Is this the new normal uh, with regards to both Taiwan and the Western Pacific, where we're just going to have carriers on station constantly and you're going to see just an increase in interaction between these two forces? Yeah, I think what happened here recently in the aftermath of uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit is I think China has uh, changed its uh, method of operating, the pattern of operating. Uh, you know, we saw uh, reaction and positioning of um, mainland uh, forces, naval and air, in in a way that, to me, I had not uh, seen before. And I, I've spent a fair amount of time in that part of the world and also uh, tracking the trajectory of, of the uh, People's Liberation Army Navy, as they call it. I'll refer to it as the PLA Navy. Yes. Uh, so I think that we've seen a change in how they will uh, uh, position themselves, respond militarily uh, in the Western Pacific. And when they flex like this, what are they telling us? I think what they're telling us is that they have uh, the, the power mm -hmm. and the intent to uh, put forth a more assertive posture. Uh, I think it is a signal uh, to the region that uh, they consider themselves to be the dominant naval power in the region. There's little doubt in my mind, too, that a lot of this is for domestic consumption, yeah. um, indicating to the Chinese people 
um, that that they will respond, that they will use uh, military that they have invested heavily in over the last uh, few decades. And uh, uh, I think it's it's a statement, and and it's no coincidence that as they get ready for their Congress in probably October, um, that that there's a dynamic there as well. Now, our Hoover colleague, uh, Neil Ferguson, likes to refer to the uh, U.S.-China rivalry as Cold War II. Uh, if we put this into uh, naval um, uh, phraseology, Admiral Roughhead, uh, you look at the original Cold War with the Soviets, and in terms of naval operations, that's dominated by what? Submarines, the Soviets trying to break out in the Atlantic. Uh, you look at the Chinese Navy, though, they have subs, they have carriers, they have aircraft, they have rockets. How does it strikes me as a much more diverse fleet than the Soviets? So, how does this change America's planning? Yeah, well, you know, I would say in comparing the two, and, and I've had the opportunity to experience both, mm-hmm. um, the difference with respect to China is it's, it's heavily concentrated, excuse me, in the East Asian littoral. Uh, that's where, you know, the, the uh, the contact uh, and the interaction is taking place uh, with the Soviet Navy, uh, as you highlighted, you know, a main area of operation for them and where we were up against them on a daily basis uh, was in the North Atlantic, uh, which referred to as the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap. Um, you know, our objective was to um, prevent a breakout from there heavily, uh, as you mentioned, submarines. But the Mediterranean was a very, very active um, area for uh, the Soviet Navy and for us. Uh, That's where I began my naval career. Um, A lot of attention being paid to um, not allowing the Soviet Black Sea Fleet to break out of the Black Sea through the Aegean down into the Mediterranean Mm -hmm. and come at NATO through the underbelly. So it was a little more distributed. Um, the submarine activity was much more intense. I would also argue that during the, the Cold War with the Soviets, that a lot of the interaction that took place was was actually more dangerous than some of the maneuvering that we see between the PLA Navy and the U.S. Navy. Um, you know, there's that stock car term, uh, trading paint, um, and, and that was literally the case uh, where uh, we had a series of collisions between U.S. Navy and Soviet Navy ships, which generated um, a, a set of protocols and agreements uh, that really helped control that. And I think one of the concerns I have with regard to China is that we do not have those types of deconfliction or de-escalation mechanisms in place, uh, not for want of trying on our part, but um, you know my my main concern is that as the the Chinese and U.S. forces operate in closer proximity, uh, the fact that we uh, can't exchange information rapidly. Uh, to take uh, de-escalatory measures, I think is is um, uh, is going to be a problem because if uh, my sense is that if there is going to be uh, an incident, it will likely result from uh, an accident or a mishap or a misstep um, as the two forces are operating in close proximity. 
You're talking ships colliding, airplanes colliding in the air and so forth. Yeah. And yes. And I would say that the, the, my main concern is it's, it's highly more probable that it would be an aviation incident. We've already seen that once with one of their fighters and a, and a, a patrol plane of ours. Right. Um, and when you get to, um, you know, I refer to them as invincible fighter pilots uh, of any nationality. Um, you know, sometimes they can really press the limit, and that's when you have uh, have an accident. Mm-hmm. You've uh, looked at the PLA Navy. It, I believe, it has more vessels than we have in our Navy now. Uh, they just, mm-hmm. uh, they just, uh, they're outfitting a modern carrier now. Uh, they continue to move forward on their subs and their surface fleet. What, what about that force impresses you? What do you think the Chinese do well? Well, I, I think uh, one of the things that they've done well is they've really increased the size of their force, and mm-hmm. they have increased the. The, the capabilities that are resident in in the in the force, um, and the, the numbers, as I mentioned, they have the advantage of being able to concentrate uh, in the area uh, South China Sea, the area around Taiwan, um, and in the East China Sea. So you know, right now they have a force level of about 355. Uh, the trajectory is. Uh, likely going to be around 420 ships by uh, 2025 up to 460 by two uh, by 2030. Um, those are kind of what we would call the battle force ships, but they also have 85 uh, patrol craft that can shoot missiles at you. And when you're talking about the South China Sea or the, the uh, Taiwan Strait, uh, those 85, uh, can become problematic as well. So, you know, they've really increased their numbers. Uh, it is clear to me that they have increased the complexity of how they operate. Uh, they have really moved into the term that they use uh, of warfare under informationalized conditions is a term that they use. In other words, using high-tech systems to share information and exchange information. Um, and, uh, you know, they have advanced some of their weapons capabilities. Mm. Um, their submarines have gotten much better, but, uh, as with all navies, I, I always look at the quality of the people and the PLA Navy officers that I met in my first encounter with them, which was in the early 1990s. And those that I uh, meet, uh, COVID has slowed a little bit of that down, um, that I meet today, um, they are much more confident. They uh, have a sense of of having arrived as a major global Navy, Mm -hmm. um, even though they don't operate as extensively uh, geographically as extensively as we do. Uh, right. So there's a there's a bit more swagger in, um, in 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 their navy than there used to be. Yeah, I was a, that was going to be my next question. When you look at this fleet, is this truly a blue water fleet, or is this more of the Chinese after more of the concept of Mare Nostrum? They want to because as the Romans viewed the Mediterranean as Mare Nostrum, our sea, do the Chinese see the uh, South China Sea similarly? Well, there's no question that that their priority is in in the littoral, the East Asian littoral. But mm-hmm. the ships that they have um, 
uh, are clearly blue water capable. Mm-hmm. And by blue water, I mean that they can go at distance. Um, we have seen episodic uh, deployments into the Mediterranean, some into Europe, um, even during the time that I was serving, which was you know a, a decade ago. Uh, they would have task forces operating in the Somali basin where many nations were conducting counter piracy operations. So they're staying close to home, but the ships that they have are capable of longer range uh, deployments. But, you know, as, as we all know, China takes a, a longer view. Um, they're really focused, uh, and I think we saw it play out here in the last couple of weeks. Uh, on being able to apply this force in the area around Taiwan. So um, in a matter of time, I think it will not be uncommon to see them uh, in in more distant places. Um, and, and so uh, capability is there. I think they want to stay a little closer to home. Right. But uh, I think the other thing that one can't discount, and, and I referred to the U.S. as a global naval power, but I think you have to recognize the fact that uh, China is a global maritime power. And I make that distinction because whereas we have a global navy, um, you know, China has a network of ports that they either own or operate uh, in excess of 90 in some pretty key positions. They are a major uh, commercial shipping nation. They have the largest distant water fishing fleet. They have uh, moved aggressively into ship financing. Um, and their shipbuilding is is impressive. And not only are they cranking out a lot of, of Navy ships, but their commercial shipbuilding um, industry is quite impressive as well. Mm-hmm. I think one other way to look at this is uh, like the Chinese have committed a trillion dollars, I believe, in uh, Belt and Initiative Road money. It was seen to me, Admiral, that having a Navy uh, would back up your footprint. You could show that you're not just a great you know, industrial power or great economic power, but also you have the military strength to complement that. It, it, exactly. And as I've often said, you know, the, what, what we're seeing in China should not surprise anyone. Um, you know, we've seen it with the Dutch, with the British, with the Spanish, with the U.S. As you become a major economic power and you rely on trade, um, the merchant fleets uh, support that trade. And then you have a navy to make sure that those sea lanes uh, remain available to you. So, um, you know, China has has followed that path. They're making significant investments in in the maritime sector and in and in their navy and that's what we're going to be dealing with for the next couple of couple of decades let's uh, shift now and talk about the u.s navy uh the so-called battle force ship assessment requirement that's a uh, lot of words devoted to much simply building new ships uh the plan is mm-hmm. to build 75 new ships over the next two decades Expand the fleet to 373. This would be 12 carriers by 2045 versus 11 now. 66 attack subs versus 50 at present. 96 large service, combat, service combatants versus 93 now. These are early Burke destroyers, next-gen destroyers. You're what you used to mm-hmm. command. Uh, 56 small service combatants versus 32 now. These are Constellation-class guided missile frigates. Um, does this plan make sense to you? 
Uh, I, I think it's it, it does make sense. Uh, I would like to see some of these numbers uh, arrive sooner mm-hmm. than uh, than what is in the plan. And and I think you know what what I have seen over time is that the nation and the and the, and and the leadership uh, has a desire for a larger navy. Right. That desire is not what we're willing to pay for. And um, and it has a lot of ramifications, not just in the number of ships that are being built, but in the infrastructure that's required, uh, you know, to build these ships. I think it's it's also, you know, when I talk about uh, the, the desire to pay for it, when I look at the budget, for example, in 2023, and even though it has not uh, been passed, it's it's going to come in right, you know, probably at around eight hundred uh, billion dollars, a little above eight hundred billion dollars. And I look at the uh, the fiscal year twenty twenty three shipbuilding plan, which is the ships that we want to buy in that year, mm-hmm. and and it represents three point five percent of the defense budget. Um, if you take and look at the investment account of the Department of Defense, that that it represents about nineteen percent. So, um, you know, it's a it's a question of what the nation wants in its navy, and uh, and and it's not just all about uh, a potential conflict with China. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is so important is having naval forces around the world that allow you to um, have a recognized presence. Uh, it serves as a deterrent uh, in, in in areas. It allows you to respond much more quickly. And, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, the proximity of, of uh, uh, the operations of, of the PLA Navy. Right. You know, we have to cross two great oceans to get to areas of interest to the United States. And the rule of thumb that I always used was that to have a ship forward in some part of the world, whether it was in the Middle East or the Western Pacific, uh, or even in the Mediterranean, um, because of the maintenance requirements and the fact that you have to give your crews a little bit of a break from time to time, mm-hmm. um, you to have one ship on station someplace, you need anywhere between four and five in the inventory to, to be able to source that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when I look at our current ship count, if you, you know, if you use that ratio, mm-hmm. um, you can have anywhere between 60 and 70 ships deployed at any given time. Uh, if you try to squeeze that, then you incur problems with maintenance and retention and a variety of other things. So, you know, you just can't look at the ship count number right. um, and think that that's a fungible number that can be employed anywhere in the world at any given time. Um, and I think that is something that we tend not to have a robust enough discussion about. So if a new president came in and talked about fast-tracking naval construction, the media would hail it as a buildup, much like Ronald Reagan coming into office in 1981. But is buildup really the right term here? Because it sounds what you're suggesting doesn't sound so much as expanding the fleet as just a little bit of modernizing, but also just improving its footing, its ability just to carry out its mission. So you could just talk about it, I think, more as just keeping the Navy on a competitive footing more so than maybe expanding and building up. 
Now, as you go back to the build up of 40 years ago, you go back to the build up 40 years ago, my goodness, we trotted out battleships for heaven's sake to get to what 600 ships. So, but I don't think that's what we're talking about in this age. No, I don't think so. And I think it, it, you know, what, what uh, should be the conversation is where do we want to be? Uh, what type of presence do we want to have in certain areas of the, of the world? And then sizing the fleet to that, uh, that assessment. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, I would often be told that, gosh, you guys are so responsive. You, you, you're there so quickly. And, and the reason we were there so quickly is because we were there. Right. And I think it's also going to become more significant, um, as countries become more sensitive to their sovereignty and, um, uh, you know, the, the desire to have a foreign military on their soil, I think, is going to become uh, a bit more challenging in the future. And what naval forces afford you the opportunity of is 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 being there, and also to be able to shift them um, as needed. And I could give you several examples of of responses in which I've been involved in my career um, that 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 much power could not be moved in any other way other than by naval forces. I'll give us one example. Yeah, well, one was 1996 with the uh, crisis in Taiwan of, of that year, um, was in the uh, Persian Gulf, um, got a uh, call from my boss who was on the aircraft carrier, and he said, we're leaving tomorrow morning for Taiwan. Um, and we took our carrier battle group and moved to Taiwan, and we were there in about 10 days off of um, uh, the to the south of the island. Another one, similarly, I was uh, commanding a carrier group in the Persian Gulf, uh, received a, a, another call uh, on a Sunday afternoon to move my group uh, to the Adriatic Sea because um, at that time, uh, Milosevic was making noises about potentially going into Montenegro. And uh, we sailed out of the Gulf the, the next Monday morning. And one week later in the Adriatic, we were launching airplanes. Um, and part of the reason was that there were reservations on part of our NATO uh, allies about overflight rights in Europe. And the only way that we could assure um, access uh, was to have a naval force. And then one week we pulled out of the Persian Gulf, uh, moved it and reconfigured and were operating in the Adriatic Sea. Uh, no other military in the world can do that. And I would argue no other military service in the world can do that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm parochial. Right. So uh, one thing I do in my spare time, Gary, is I like to go onto Google Maps and I like to look at naval bases and naval construction. It just, it's something out of my childhood. My father was a, uh, a reservist for about 25, 30 years, and we would take father-son trips to see the reserve fleet in Philadelphia, to see uh, the fleet in Norfolk. Um, uh, we we did a few trips here in California to see old naval facilities as well, like the Long Beach Yard before it shut down and so forth. I looked at Newport News recently. Here's what I found. 
you look at the image on Google and what you see is there is the, uh, the enterprise, the, the decommissioned enterprise now is sitting there awaiting disposal. This is very complicated. It's the first time we're disposing of a nuclear carrier. So the Navy is trying to figure out exactly how to do that. It's a huge vessel, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, the USS Gerald Ford, CV-78, the newest carrier, first of its class. It's wrapping up uh, its trial stage. Uh, meanwhile, you have two Nimitz-class carriers in the yard undergoing midlife refueling. Uh, two more Ford-class carriers, the Kennedy and the new Enterprise, are under construction. They're starting to cut steel on the Dory Miller, which is CV-81. That is a heck of a lot of work for y- one yard. But then when you think about it in this regard, so Newport News handles carriers. Uh, the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard um, over on the West Coast is the only dry dock, I think, on the West Coast capable of handling an aircraft carrier. It sounds like we're awfully dependent upon these two facilities to take care of our carriers. Um, absolutely. But, um, you know, it's, it's um, not just the shipyards where you kind of do, uh, I would say, the less extensive maintenance. So we do work in, in, in the home ports where the carriers uh, right. are located. Right. We have the advantage, for example, our, our carrier that's in Yokosuka, mm-hmm. uh, Japan, uh, industrial facility there. But I think you touch on a very, very good point, which is... Um, you know, how do you not only how do you build uh, these incredible machines, uh, but then how do you maintain them? Right. And, um, you know, when I uh, would consider not only acquiring the Navy of the future, but also maintaining today's Navy and the Navy of tomorrow, I would always say, you know, what is the mission that we need to do? What is the budget that I'm given? And then the third factor was how do I keep a healthy industrial base? Right. Because it's it's more than just the facilities, um, it's the workforce. And, uh, you know, that is, in my view, uh, becoming increasingly fragile. Um, and, it's, and it's not just the workforce that may be turning a wrench on a particular ship in a particular port, mm-hmm. but it's the, the second, third, and fourth uh, uh, tier suppliers not just to shipbuilding, but also to ship maintenance. And, uh, and, and I think we really need to spend uh, some attention as a nation on you know, how do we maintain that force, not, not just maintain it, but how do we grow it? Because increasingly, you know, fewer and fewer young people are going into what I would call the trades. Right. Um, whether welding or whatever it may be. And, and it, it's really unfortunate because, you know, a young man or woman coming out of high school, um, you know, I'm, I'm affiliated with a shipyard in, in, uh, in the Midwest where we're building the new frigate. And, um, and, and a young man or woman coming out of there, uh, coming out of high school, going to work there uh, within three years uh, will likely be making more money than the average uh, salary of a college graduate. So, um, you know, we really need, I think, to uh, to make sure that we're paying attention to that. So we once had 11 major naval shipyards in this country, and now we're down to four. Uh, Norfolk, um, Pearl Harbor, Portsmouth, Maine, and Puget Sound. Uh, do we need to add more naval shipyards? I, I think my own view is I think we're fine with the naval shipyards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they really are mainly focused on maintaining our nuclear, uh, uh, powered ships, right. submarines. Um, and so I think that we were in a, in a good place there. We need to make sure that we are 
one making the the capital expenditures to to maintain modern facilities again i come back to workforce you know are we um, being able to incent young people to come into into that business i think the other dimension is the the construction yards um that where where we build our our combatants and our submarines and aircraft carriers uh, and making sure that you know the shipbuilding plan that we have can sustain um, a predictable level of work in, in, into the future. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, shift back to the Pacific for a second, and let's talk about AUKUS, the Australian-UK-US uh, partnership. Uh, Australia is going to acquire nuclear subs. We're going to uh, help them build the first couple, and I believe they will be uh, on the hook to build eight after that. Uh, sounds like a new phase in our naval relations. Uh, ab- absolutely. And, um, you know, there's no better ally than than our Aussie uh, friends. And... Um, and I think that one of the things that, not uh, unrelated to what I just spoke about, is it's it's more than the submarine. And you know what Australia will be dealing with in the in the coming years is how do they create the infrastructure, mm-hmm. one to eventually build the submarine, but also to maintain the submarine, and then what is you know the the human capital uh, policies that they will have in place to maintain not just the the sailors that will be operating the submarine, but but creating that same industrial base that is so important to the life of these significant investments that we make. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I talk to folks about AUKUS, uh, I always make the point of saying it, it's a it's a national enterprise that has to be created. And and it's more than just the boat. And of course, as you know, there are other dimensions to AUKUS um, in other in other security areas. But but I think the submarine has has captured the imagination. But I think it's important uh, for us and for Australia to look at how do we best cooperate um, and and work to create the the, the infrastructure. To maintain these, because uh, you know, once Australia has that capability, it also gives us uh, another location where our submarines can put in uh, for maintenance and training and um, uh, and, and some on our. So I think it's um, uh, it's important that we look at AUKUS with the aperture uh, wide open. Right. Let's talk about forward deployment for a second. So we have the uh, base at Yosuka in Japan, where we have a carrier and uh, ships with it. Uh, we have a submarine presence in Guam. I think we have a tender in uh, Guam. But where else are we forward deployed in the Western Pacific? Um, we we did have some uh, littoral combat ships that were in mm-hmm. uh, in Singapore. Right. Um, and I I think it as we look at the numbers of um, particularly the, the PLA Navy, um, and we look at our shipbuilding plan, one of the things that I believe needs to happen is to look at more forward basing in the Western Pacific. Um, you know, it's, it's easily said, but there are challenges, you know, politically. Mm-hmm. There are infrastructure requirements. Um, we have the, the great advantage of our, of our Japanese allies, um, Providing terrific facilities for us uh, in Japan, uh, from which we operate and maintain our force. 
Um, but I think we really need to think about putting more forces farther west uh, simply to change that uh, calculus that I talked about of four to one, five to one, especially looking at the numbers of the PLA Navy. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's a challenge. But from my own experience, the biggest challenge in being able to do that is domestically because there is not a delegation in the United States that will stand up and say, yes, take some of these uh, uh, assets uh, some of these families and move them out of my district. Uh, and I think uh, in my experience has been that that's where the biggest challenge is. For example, taking a carrier out of Coronado. Exactly. Um, and saying, you know, we're going to move it forward or even saying, hey, we would like to put a couple of more submarines forward into Guam uh, or or if, you know, once AUKUS uh, gets uh, established, you know, is is uh, Australia a good place to forward deploy some submarines? Um, you know, because as I said, we we need to look at uh, the force that we want to have forward in the Western Pacific. How quickly and how ready do we want it to be? And and as I look at the numbers, forward deploying is uh, is the most rapid solution, but as I indicated, not without political challenge. Admiral, if we took the job of a chief of naval operations and uh, turned it into a pie chart in terms of uh, percent of time spent doing X, Y, and Z, um, what would the majority of your time as a CNO be spent doing? Um, In my time, uh, a lot of it was spent focused on force structure, trying to move into some of the new technologies. Uh, For example, I spent a good amount of time on... um, Working to advance unmanned capability mm-hmm. in um, in the Navy, I think that clearly is an area where we can make great progress. I've been uh, disappointed in the fact that, for example, we flew an autonomous uh, tailless airplane uh, on and off an aircraft carrier, refueled, refueled it autonomously in 2012, and we still don't have that operational capability out there. Um, that's over a decade ago. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, we also, an area of great interest to me was unmanned underwater systems, which I think have extraordinary uh, potential. And and so I spent a lot of time um, focused on that, reorganized uh, the Navy in, in that regard. But I, I think that we really need to be thinking about how do we more rapidly introduce some of the new capabilities uh, into the force. And how much of your time was spent on retention? Um, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I traveled uh, quite a bit uh, because I think the best way to gauge the tone of the force is to get out there and, and actually spend time with sailors and their families. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and during my time, it kind of cycled. Um, as As you know, Retention is is really a function of how well our economy is is uh, performing. Mm-hmm. Um, when the economy is is doing very very well, retention is hard because there are opportunities for young people, particularly given the skills and experience and the leadership that they have developed over their time in the Navy. Uh, when the economy tightens up. 
uh, retention tends to be good. So you have to be able to try to anticipate that and and look at what are the right types of incentives um, to uh, to maintain the type of talent that uh, is is needed. And and a lot of that talent is in demand uh, in in, uh, in the civilian world. I think one of the areas that uh, most recently is under pressure are uh, our young men and women who who operate in the cyber domain. Right. Um, you know, there there was a time where if you had a particular skill in the Navy, maybe it wouldn't translate into uh, every sector of our economy. But once you get into information technology, cyber. It doesn't make any difference if you're in the financial sector or in the logistics sector. Um, that uh, talent is in, in is in great demand. Uh, one of the areas that um, I've paid particular attention uh, were our nuclear trained operators, uh, the young men and women that operate our nuclear reactors and our submarines and aircraft carriers. Um, they are extraordinarily in their knowledge, in their uh, precision, and and those skills are sought after uh, by more than just the power industry. So, you know, paying attention to that, uh, really looking at indicators of where you may uh, begin to see uh, some retention issues is is something that I, I paid a lot of attention to, and and as you know, so many know, and, and all of us who have served, um, you know, there was a time, even as, as uh, recent as when I came in the Navy, where you worried about retaining the sailor. And now it, uh, it it's a family affair. And I would often say I recruit a sailor and I retain a family. And so what are the programs that you have in place, particularly when so many young people today are dual income? So how do you provide for childcare? Um, how, how do you make sure that the medical facilities that are available to our young men and women are, are really top shelf and are, and are valued by them? So there are so many different areas that you have to look at uh, to make sure that um, a young family says, yes, I'd like to stay around and make a career of this. Yes, and those are, are things that you can't take your eye off of. Right. So uh, Admiral Michael Day, he is uh, the uh, the present uh, chief of naval operations. He told Congress in May that the Navy is going to make its recruiting goals for this year, but it has a long-term problem. He echoed exactly what you said. It's cyber expertise. If you look at the numbers right now, uh, Gary, uh, the Navy in fiscal year 2021 had a 67% reenlistment rate for sailors with six years of service or fewer, 68% for six to 10 years of service, 85% for 10 to 14. Those numbers sound good and strong, but then you look at aircraft carrier retention goals, 64% for six or less, uh, that's versus the current uh, 67%, uh, 75% for six for 10 versus the 68%, so we're good on that front. But then 85% at current for 10, 14, and the carrier goal is 90% for 10 to 14. So uh, the Navy's gonna have to stud up a little bit. Yeah, and this this brings you back around to force structure again, right? Uh, because if if you continue to press the force, you know if they're uh, gone all the time, and even though the the young sailor may absolutely love what they do, uh, when they come home, they have a family discussion about you know do we continue to do this or not? 
you know, I, I recall uh, a time when our force was pretty well stretched and we were deploying uh, uh, ships for you know, particularly the carriers uh, for 11 months at a pop and then bringing them back, turning them around quickly. And uh, you can do that maybe twice, perhaps three times, but then it really starts to take its toll on retention. It takes its toll on the wear and tear on the ships, which then you have to use money to address that problem that then you can take, that you're likely going to have to take it away from acquiring new things. So it's a, a very delicate balance of, of how you have to look at how the Navy is being used, what the size of the Navy is, what the patterns of operations are, and it and it plays in, in every area, in the aging of the things that you buy and how much money you spend on maintenance, and most importantly, what you're asking the young men and women in our Navy to do time and time again. Um, and, it, and it's all integrated. So when you asked me, how did I spend most of my time? Mm-hmm. It was prom- it was taking, trying to figure all of those inputs and get getting to the right balance. So final question for you, Admiral Ruffhead. Uh, history of naval warfare tells us one of two things about um, how fights begin. Uh, one school of argument is that it's inevitable when two great powers develop strong fleets. This would be uh, the Spanish and the English way back in the what uh, 16th century. This would be uh, the Germans and the English uh, leading up to World War One and World War II, uh, the United States and Japan, uh, 1930s to 1940s. So one school of thought is the U.S. and China both have strong navies and it's inevitable the two forces will clash. The other school of thought is that sometimes uh, naval warfare begins over the question of freedom of the seas. This would be um, a very early uh, young republic, the United States going to war at the Barbary states over over pirates raiding mm-hmm. American ships. The War of 1812 began in part because the British were taking American ships uh, out in the ocean. So you look at the South China Sea um, to the idea that there could be, would be, maybe a conflict at one point down the road. Do you think it's going to happen because the two powers are on an inevitable collision course, or is the flashpoint going to be one over maritime traffic and freedom of traffic in those seas? I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I think if there's a clash, it's going to be um, because there's a lack of communication um, and uh, overly aggressive behavior on the two. But I would also say that it's important for uh, the U.S. and our allies and those who value the freedom of the seas to, um, uh, to tighten those relationships and um, and 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 demonstrate the consensus that maintaining those sea lanes as free and open is important, not just the United States, but uh, to all the countries that rely on that trade. And I think that um, this requires not just um, good military uh, strategy thinking and readiness, but uh, you know, particularly in Asia. I think that we have to uh, have a much more uh, forward-leading economic policy and trade policy that will help us knit those countries together uh, into a consortium uh, that will uh, make it very, very clear that the freedom of the seas is, is, is hugely important. I've long maintained since you know we 
were unable to get ourselves into the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that I think that has probably been one of the biggest strategic missteps that we've made in, in recent history. And is there a way for the U.S. Navy to talk to the Chinese Navy, or is just this going to be the continued cat and mouse games that we saw with the Soviets for years? Well, at the present uh, stage, I think that it is um, uh, the way it's going to be. Um, I, you know, sadly, it may require an incident where both sides agree that hey, this is, uh, you know, not working out. So we have to have a, a method of, of deconflicting. That's essentially what happened with the, with the Soviets. But I don't see in any indication on the part of the Chinese um, to want to have those types of discussions just now. And, and sadly, it's probably going to require or going to uh, cause an incident. And from that, then we have either two paths you can take. One is it escalates or um, there's an agreement to come together to figure out how to behave in a more responsible way um, and to have open lines of communication, which is something that the U.S. and our uh, allies and partners in the region have been advocating for a long time. And I'm hopeful that our Chinese interlocutors will come to that same point of view. All right, Admiral Ruffhead, I'm going to give you the last word. Anything you would like to add? Anything that you think we have uh, missed in the course of this conversation? No, Bill, your questions have been wonderful. I think the, the most important thing to take away is that maintaining a Navy is more than just the number of ships that you have. It's an entire ecosystem uh, that involves not just the government, um, but uh, civilian entities. And importantly, it really requires the young men and women uh, in our country um, who want to serve to go off and uh, join the Navy and see the world as, as I did and enjoyed nearly four decades of, of being able to do that and being involved in a range of very interesting operations around the world. Um, but I think it's also important that we can't lose sight of the fact that this is not just a military issue. It's a national security issue. Uh, it involves our industrial base. It involves our suppliers. It involves our relationships with other countries. Um, and, and, and I think we have to have a more complete uh, discussion about what is needed to uh, build and maintain a Navy that will assure American security and prosperity into the future. Admiral Gary Ruffhead, thanks for the conversation. Thank you for your service to the nation. And thanks for all you do for the Hoover Institution, including leading us uh, in our selection process for the newest class of Hoover Veterans Fellows who we'll be introducing to the world very shortly. Well, thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure as, as it always is. Thank you. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. If you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Get your friends to give us a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.